how do you respond uh, when someone gives you a rule to follow? You, know, you need to do this, or you can't do that. Uh, do you pay careful attention to the rules so that you can be sure to follow it and not break it? Or do you feel like just recoil within yourself, like, this is a rule, I don't want a, a rule on me. And some of us are naturally rule keepers. Uh, we hear a rule and we try to, our best to keep the rule. Maybe you feel, well, that's just a respectful thing to do. Like, they gave me the rules, so I should respect the rule. Maybe you don't want to get in trouble, and that's why you keep the rules. And some of us are naturally rule breakers. And you, we hear a rule, and we don't respect it. Maybe you think, no one's going to tell me what to do, or who made this person the boss of me? Rules make you feel like someone's putting restrictions on your life. It's kind of like claustrophobic and uh, taking away your freedom. And so it's like, I don't like rules. And some people's motto uh, is, uh, rules are made to be broken. And so maybe you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker. Personally, I tend uh, most of the time to be a rule keeper. And we, when I began growing as a Christian in high school and attending a youth group, uh, I had a very a judgmental attitude. And I would look at uh, other people who claim to be Christians and who are attending this youth group, and I would see them doing things that didn't seem to be in line with what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be behaving as Christians, and I would feel superior to them, and I would look down on them. And during my uh, first year of college, a friend asked me, you know, what book of the Bible should I read? And I told them, uh, the book of James, because it really clears you, clearly tells you what to do and what not to do. I really like having the rules set out uh, before me so that I could be like, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm not supposed to do, the do's and do nots. And I would use them to measure other people and to compare myself to other people. And perhaps you can relate. And it's something that you know, I still struggle with to this day. Of like, you know, how, what, how am I feeling about uh, other people in regard to their obedience? But interestingly, I had a difficult time following the rules in school. Uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I don't remember how many dictionary pages I was required to copy. Does anybody else have that punishment in their school? Where it was like, you were talking too much in class, and so now here you have to copy 10 pages out of the dictionary. So I you know, have to stay up at night in the dictionary, copying the, the words onto another notebook paper, and then hand it in. And I don't know, the other way to do it was, you know, I will not talk in class when I'm not supposed to. You know, write that sentence 100 times. And I guess the hope was eventually it would be, you know, get into your head uh, that I'm not supposed to talk in class when I'm, you know, when it's not my turn. So I don't know how many of those I had to write over the course of grade school, I should have saved some so I could be like, check it out, you know, just this is the stack of stuff I wrote. Uh, but I was also given a detention a, a number of times in high school. You know, not for you know very serious things, but I think for some rule followers, uh, if we see the value and purpose behind the rule, then we will follow it. But if it doesn't make sense to us, we think, well, I don't, I don't see the point in keeping this rule. Some of you may react to that thinking, well, the purpose of rules is to follow them. <laughs> That's the purpose of them. You don't need to know any more purpose than that. It's a rule, so you follow it. Now, others of you may think, yeah, why should we follow pointless rules? Like, I don't, I don't have any you know, care for doing that. But let's take this into our relationship with God. How do you react to God's rules and laws? When you're reading in the Bible, or you're listening on a Sunday or any time, and you see a command, how do you react to that? Do you how do you respond to it? How do you feel? When you read the Ten Commandments, the ones that Katie read earlier, uh, what do you feel towards them? Do you feel like, uh, yeah, I need to follow those, I can pay close attention, or do you just feel like, this is just constricting me? What's up with these rules? I thought it was about relationship. Why are we getting all these rules and laws? 
And there's a part of us that wants to keep the rules to stay out of trouble with God. The human heart draws us toward proving ourselves worthy of love, worthy of salvation, worthy of whatever it is we want from God. There's another part of us that resists rules. The human heart hates to be told no. And so what should be our attitude towards God's rules, God's commands, God's laws, especially the ones in the Old Testament? Were those, you know, that was just all about rules back then. Now we've got Jesus, love, grace, mercy, relationship. No more rules, now we've got all that. Was the Old Testament all about laws and Jesus is all about love? So what should our attitude towards God's rules, laws, and commands be? And today as we continue this series in the Gospel according to Luke, uh, we're seeing more and more Jesus revealing how did he come to seek and to save us from our lost condition of our uh, being far from God and walking far from him. And we're seeing an up-close picture of who Jesus is and what it means to be his disciple. In this passage, Luke 6, 1 through 11, Jesus gets into a conversation with some rule keepers, people who are very concerned with keeping the rules. And their names, they're called the Pharisees. And Pharisees mean uh, the separated one. You know, it might have been a name given to them by people who didn't like them, like, oh, those are the separated ones. Um, but that's the name, what that word means. And Pharisees made sure to separate themselves from everything um, that was bad or sinful or unclean. And they tried to do everything right. And maybe you can relate to that. You try to keep yourself from things that are bad or sinful, or at least that would have a bad influence on you. You don't go to rock concerts. You don't hang out at bars. You don't watch movies or TV shows that have an R rating so that you don't see too much violence, hear too much swearing, or witness sexually explicit scenes. You rarely, if ever, swear. You don't drink alcohol. You don't wear offensive t-shirts. You wear nice clothes to church services. You take your hat off when you come in. You pray before meals and before bed. You wear a one-piece swimsuit. You have a filter on your computer to block inappropriate content. And so think to yourself, do you do any of these? And I'm giving you these examples so we can start to understand the Pharisees and what they are doing with their lives, what their mindset was, because I think they often get misunderstood. Because we think, Pharisees, how could they do that? I'm nothing like them. They're so rigid, so legalistic. They suck the fun right out of everything. Um, We often think we aren't anything like them. But we need to understand that what they're trying to do is honor God with their lives. And if you do any of those things that I listed... That's what I'm sure you're trying to do as well, to keep yourself from things that are bad or sinful or could influence you the wrong way or that could influence others the wrong way. They were trying to obey God's commands. In fact, they created uh, like a fence around God's commands. So you have God's commands, and then you have another set of commands, a fence of their man-made rules that would keep this margin, this buffer between them and breaking God's laws. Like, okay, we have God's laws, And let's create a little barrier around that so that even if we break those, we're not even close to breaking God's laws. And so they had human rules on top of God's rules to keep them far away from breaking any of God's commands. And we too will often put up a boundary or a fence far away from what is bad so we don't even get close to it, far away from what is sinful so we don't even get close to it or anything inappropriate. And we put them up to keep us from dishonoring God and disobeying God, and that's what they were doing too. That doesn't mean they didn't get off track, which we'll get, we'll see later. The Pharisees paid attention to obeying God's laws, and we should too. And they were concerned with two things, the law of God and the kingdom of God. And they believed if we're faithful to the law of God, 
then God's kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. He'll send his Messiah. We'll get our land back. He'll push out all these you know, Gentile pagans who have taken over our land. And we'll have the kingdom of God back in the land of Israel. That was their hope. And God told them, you know, this all makes sense. Because God told them, if people turn back to him from their sin, turn back to him from their unfaithfulness, then he would restore the nation to what uh, it was in the beginning. And how better to show that you've turned back to God than by keeping all these laws and commands and rules that God has given carefully. And the command under discussion in these two stories is the Sabbath law. And this topic came up a lot in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. And now, you may not be familiar with the Sabbath, but here's just a brief intro and we'll have more detail later. When God entered into relationship with Israel, he gave them the Ten Commandments. That was like the foundation. And all the other laws are like explaining and applying the Ten Commandments. That's like the foundation. It's like they had this marriage... Uh, ceremony type thing at Mount Sinai. It was like God said, you know, I've rescued you, I'm your God, and here's your vows back to me, the Ten Commandments. This is what you're vowing to do. And one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath. And so let's reread it again in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So everyone and everything was to rest on the Sabbath day, because God finished his work of creation and rested on the seventh day. So the seventh day lined up with the Sabbath. Six days of work. One day of rest. The Sabbath day was celebrated from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. That's how they uh, marked their days. Before sundown on Friday came, you were to make all the preparations necessary for the next day so that you didn't have to work. Your meal preparation and whatever else needed to be made. So it's Friday afternoon. That's time to get ready because sundown is Sabbath and we're not working. And it was a core part of Israelite religion and life. Everyone practiced the Sabbath. So with that introduction, let's look at the first story in uh, verses 1 through 5 in chap- Luke chapter 6. And so while Jesus and his disciples are traveling, they are walking through a grain field. And as they do so, uh, they're picking the, the heads of the grain uh, and eating them, rubbing them between their hands, which remove the outer shell uh, so that they can then eat them. And if you think about it, uh, we don't often stop on the side of the road to jump into somebody's cornfield and get our lunch we would consider that stealing. That's their corn. They planted it. You can't just jump into their field. So what are they doing here? But God's laws for Israel actually allowed for this activity. You weren't allowed to take a sickle, you know, kind of this blade to to chop down the grain, but you were allowed to walk through the grain fields and pluck grain from it. So that was allowed according to God's law. And in fact, God even commanded field owners, don't harvest all the way to the edge of your field. Don't harvest the whole thing. You need to leave some of the grain uh, for the poor and the sojourners who are kind of like in your land, but that's not really their home. And so it was this way to provide for people who were needy and vulnerable in the land of Israel. Like, don't harvest all your grain, leave it for other people, and people could walk through your field and pluck it. And the scribes and Pharisees raised an issue about the disciples' activity, asking, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And the issue is not what they're doing, but when they're doing it. You could pluck the grain other days, but today you are working on the Sabbath. Work was not allowed on the Sabbath. And Exodus 34:21 specifically states, even in plowing and harvest time, 
You know, Bozo's like, this is prime time. We've got to get the seed in the ground. We've got to plow it. Harvest time. We've got to harvest this out. This is prime time. Even in plowing and harvest time, you must not work on the Sabbath. You need to take a rest. And the disciples, they're not only plucking, which could be considered harvesting, but they're also threshing and winnowing by separating the wheat from the chaff. They're rubbing it in their hand and separating the wheat from the outside shell. And then they're preparing food. So they're harvesting, uh, they're winnowing, threshing, and then they're preparing food for them to eat. And from that perspective, they're doing a lot of work from the Pharisees' perspective. And perhaps this seems like no big deal to us. We're like, you know, what, what is the big deal? Jeez, guys, like, what are all these rules about? But the Sabbath was something everyone practiced. And so we'll consider this analogy in our culture, in our nation. On August 26, 2016, uh, the Packers were playing the San Francisco 49ers. And a picture was taken during the national anthem. And in it, the 49ers quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, was captured sitting during the national anthem. He wasn't standing with everyone else. He's the only person in that whole stadium sitting on the sideline in his chair and he had been sitting before this, but, but, but this was the first time he was captured and publicized. And he said he was doing it to protest racial inequality and the oppression of black people in America. And Kaepernick received tons of criticism. He was booed, he was ridiculed, and why? When he's do, doesn't it seem like he's kind of doing a good thing? Like he's uh, telling people, like, I'm not going to stand for this, and I'm going to stand with uh, people who are oppressed and are experiencing inequality. But what he was criticized and ridiculed and blue because everyone stands for the national anthem. It's what we do. It's who we are. It's part of being an American. Everyone does it. You can't sit for the national anthem. And this can begin to help us understand the Sabbath for the nation of Israel. Everyone does it. It's what you do. It's who we are. It's part of us being a nation. This is something we do together. You don't opt out of this. It's part of being an Israelite, a Jew. And this is why the Pharisees have so much energy and passion behind this topic. And plus, it's not like they made the Sabbath up. It was God's law. So if you're not keeping the Sabbath, you are disobeying God. And God made two things clear about the Sabbath. First, what's to be avoided was clear, work. Second, the consequences of working on the Sabbath were made clear, death. If you as an individual were caught working on the Sabbath, you know, basically saying, I hear what you're saying, God, but... I don't care, I'm just doing my own thing. The consequence was death. So it's serious. The Sabbath is not suggested or optional. God warned that if the nation walked away from him by breaking his commandments, that he would take them out of the land so that the land could experience all the Sabbaths that it had missed. Like you weren't giving the land a Sabbath, you weren't giving yourself a Sabbath. It's all removing from the land so that the Sabbath can be practiced in that land because you weren't obeying it. No person or animals to work, but there isn't, the problem is there isn't a list of what's considered work, so you know what to avoid. And so it's a big deal not to work on the Sabbath, but the law isn't very descriptive about what is considered work. And so to fix this problem, the Pharisees and the scribes and others like them defined what is considered work on the Sabbath so they could honor God's command. They took a, a small amount of detail in God's law, and they made it very descriptive and very big. They actually agreed upon a list of uh, 39 categories of things that are considered work. One example is you can't walk more than a half mile. If you walk more than a half mile, that's considered work. So they're trying to get to, we're not supposed to work, what is considered work? And so they made this big body of commands and laws and stuff. And knowing the seriousness of keeping the Sabbath, 
now we can understand the Pharisees' disbelief and perhaps anger and even anxiety at what at Jesus' and disciples break from the Sabbath. What they see they're doing. You're harvesting, you're threshing, you're winnowing, you're, you're preparing food on the Sabbath. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? This is crazy. What are you doing? You need to stop. Jesus doesn't get into a debate about what is considered work and what isn't considered work. He could have said, well, you know, what we're doing isn't actually considered work, um, so we're not breaking the Sabbath. And here's, you know, here's why it's not considered work. He doesn't get into a debate like that. He goes deeper than that. Jesus answers their question from a story in the Old Testament. And this story occurs after, king, after David has been anointed as God's chosen king for Israel, but he's not yet publicly recognized as that king. King Saul is still on the throne, technically, and so he's been anointed as God's chosen king. He's going to replace Saul, but he's not yet on the throne. And King Saul was angry at David. So he's hunting David and his followers down. And while on the run from Saul, they, they needed some food, and they entered the town where the tabernacle, the, the like, tent of God's presence was. And they go and they ask the priest watching over the tabernacle, hey, we need some food. Do you have any bread? And he says, I don't have any common bread. All I have is the holy bread, the bread that sits in the tabernacle. And the only people allowed to eat this are the priests. What ends up happening is the priest gives them the holy bread uh, and lets them eat it. They're not supposed to eat it. They're not allowed to eat it. Only priests can eat it. But he gives it to people who are not priests. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, have you not read? And then he tells them the story. But of course they've read this story. They're the Bible scholars of Jesus' day. They know the story you know, probably like the back of their hand. And the question is whether they understand its implications, which is why Jesus is bringing it up. The story is an example of a time where God's law was, you know, quote, broken. And Jesus' point isn't, you know, David and his followers didn't follow the law, so neither do I. That's not his point. You know, they didn't follow the law, so look, I'm not going to follow the law either. Look, we can just break God's law. It doesn't matter. Jesus is giving them an example of a time where something of greater value and importance was put above one of God's laws. In this instance, David and his followers needed some food, and there was none to give them except the holy bread reserved for the priests. But in this case, showing mercy to the human need was more important than the law forbidding others to eat the holy bread. You know, we used to do communion with like a loaf of pita bread and we passed around and we had to stop that because of COVID for now. Um, but we, you know, we had this little loaf of bread that would be here after service. You know, I had the, uh, the, the, uh, the juice element in a cooler right there. And I imagine somebody came in here and they would just come crawling in, just famished. They're like starving to death. I'm like, do you have any food? Well, all I've got is the pita bread and the juice. But that's used for communion, so you know, sorry, we don't have any food. Uh, in that instance, there would be, well, no, we, it's good and right for us to not just, you know, hey guys, we've got leftover communion elements, you know, who wants a snack now, who's hungry? It's good and right for us not to do that after service. Uh, and it's good and right for us to set those aside as holy, and, you know, we don't, Katie and I don't go home and munch on it or drink the juice. It's like that's stored in our fridge and then brought up for this one time. But if we had somebody who was starving to death, and they're asking for food, that's the only thing we have. Well, you know, there's something higher here than keeping those things set apart. And so Jesus, is Jesus saying the law about only the priest eating the holy bread is dumb and should be ignored? No, under normal circumstances, we don't pass out the communion elements. 
We don't feed the holy bread to people, but this is a different circumstance. If there's an opportunity to care for someone and show mercy, and this is all we have, then there's flexibility. In Matthew's account of the story, he makes the need to show mercy very clear. And it's also important who's requesting the bread. This isn't just anybody requesting the bread. David was the anointed king of Israel, the king chosen by God, the Messiah, but he was not yet publicly recognized as the king. And now Jesus stands in a similar position. He has been anointed by God as baptism with the Holy Spirit. Um, he is God's chosen king of Israel and of the world, and yet he is not publicly recognized at this point in the story, in history. Jesus is drawing a parallel between himself and David. Look, David could make a decision here of what, uh, what was more important, and I can as well. And in verse 5, Jesus states this point clearly. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man from Daniel 7, who's given authority by God. And as the Son of Man, he's Lord over the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath serves him. He doesn't serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not his master. He is the master of the Sabbath. And this next story makes this point clear. So the second controversy in verses 6 to 11 occurs in a synagogue on the Sabbath where Jesus often found himself. And while Jesus was teaching, a man entered the synagogue with a withered hand, which meaning it was kind of like shriveled and, and not working. And in verse 7 we're told the Pharisees watched him closely. They're, it's like they're spying on him, watching him out of the corner of their eyes, see what is he gonna, what's he going to do here. And they're watching him, verse 7 says, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Why do they want to see whether he will heal? It says, so they might find a reason to accuse him. They're trying to collect evidence against you. They're building a case against you. They wanted to catch him doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath in front of all these people. So the question is, was it unlawful to heal on the Sabbath? If there was a health issue, their rule was, if there was a health issue that was life-threatening, then you could heal on the Sabbath. But, you know, healers and doctors, if it's not life-threatening, let it wait till the next day. Healing is working on the Sabbath. So the rule was, observe the fat Sabbath unless there's a life-threatening need. In Luke chapter 13, the ruler of a synagogue tells the people that Jesus is healing, there's six days in the week in which to work, work is ought to be done. Come those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, knowing they're watching to see whether he would heal so they could uh, build up this case and accuse him, he calls the man with a withered hand in the middle of the room uh, and asks the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And the Pharisees' tradition asks this, is this issue life-threatening or not? If not, let it wait. But Jesus changes the option. options. He doesn't make it, is it life-threatening or not life-threatening? He makes the choice either doing good and saving life or doing harm and destroying life. Those are our two choices here. And after looking at them to see if they'd answer, uh, then he uh, told the man, stretch out your hand. And when he did so, he was healed. His hand's been you know, shriveled up. How, who knows long? Okay, just go stretch out your hand. As he stretches it out, it's healed and restored. And in doing this, Jesus really didn't do any work. Uh, all he did was say, stretch out your hand. The guy really didn't do any work because all he did was, you know, do what Jesus said, stretch out his hand. But the, the fact that the man was healed shows God's approval of Jesus. God is the one who heals, and he's working through Jesus to heal, even on the Sabbath. And verse 11 shows their reaction. But they were filled with fear and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And 
what they might do to Jesus. So what kind of activity are the scribes and Pharisees engaged in on the Sabbath? Are they doing good or are they doing harm? Are they saving life or are they destroying life? It's clear that while Jesus is doing good and saving life, they are seeking to do harm and to destroy life. They're watching closely to accuse. They're, they're building evidence for a case against Jesus. And in their fury, they plot how to get rid of Jesus. And the irony is that the Pharisees and scribes think they are the ones obeying and keeping the Sabbath, and that Jesus is breaking in. And this whole scene is one of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is when your actions don't line up with your values, your stated values and beliefs or moral standards. And the Pharisees and scribes are super concerned with keeping all these rules that they've made that tell them what work is and what isn't, so that they don't break the Sabbath. But they're less concerned with what is going on in their hearts. They're very concerned with what's going on here. Are people working? Are they doing all the things we shouldn't do? Is Jesus doing the things we shouldn't do? But they're not concerned with what's going on in their hearts and what they're working out with the the desires of their hearts. They're extremely concerned with Jesus' activities on the Sabbath to make sure he doesn't break any rules. All the while, they are working to do harm and destroy life. And so is that what God intended for the Sabbath? Who's, doing, who's actually doing what's lawful in the Sabbath? Jesus is demonstrating the second story uh, that while the Pharisees are ultra-concerned with avoiding what they consider work according to the man-made rules on the Sabbath, uh, their hearts are in the wrong place and they're far from doing God's will. Maybe they're keeping all the man-made rules about not doing work on the Sabbath, but their hearts are far from God. And so we ask the question, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day that looks both backwards and forwards. It looks backwards to God's active creation. And he created the world. In six days he created, and the seventh day he rested. And, and rest doesn't mean you know God was kind of tuckered out, and so he needed to lay down for, for a day. No, rest in that culture and that time, uh, when a God is talking about rest, divine rest is... The temple has been built, and now the, the God has come to rest there, to dwell there, to bring his presence into that place. And so God is saying, I've now created the place where my presence is going to be experienced and felt, and now I'm going to rest and bring my presence into that place, which he created the earth and the universe and everything else. And what the Ten Commandments, when the Ten Commandments are later given in Exodus 20, the Sabbath is presented as a day uh, to look backward to God's active creation remember, he's a loving creator. We don't have to work, 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 but can trust that he's good. And we'll provide, and it's all been provided for us. We can rest in God. But this state of affairs was disrupted by sin in Genesis 3, and when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they were sent out of his presence. They weren't able to be uh, in the temple closest to his presence anymore. And then God chose to bless the nation of Israel so they could be a blessing to the rest of the world. When they were slaves in Egypt, working under terrible conditions and in no, with no rest, God rescued them. And when the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Sabbath is presented as a day to look back at God's act of redemption, not just back at his act of creation. When he back, it looks back at the day when they were freed from slavery. You're no longer to work as slaves or work other people or your animals as slaves, but you've been redeemed. You're no longer slaves. You've been rescued. And so on the Sabbath, you look back to God, you remember him as your creator and your redeemer. And you can rest in his presence, his love, his care, his provision, and freedom he's given you. And this means the Sabbath is a day of remembering who God is. 
and who we are. We remember, this is who he is. He's my creator, my redeemer, and this is who I am. I'm made in his image. He's taken care of me. I'm his son. I've been rescued. I'm no longer a slave. The Sabbath looks backward, but it also looks forward, because there was something lost in Genesis 3. We lost that presence. Creation got cursed and broken. Our lives are broken because of sin. The whole world is groaning under that brokenness. And we long to be in God's presence. It's what we were made for. We long for things to be right. We long for things to not be broken. We long for connection and closeness with God. We long for things to be as good as God originally designed them. And so the Sabbath looks forward to God's future acts of new creation and redemption. What was lost in Genesis 3 will one day be restored. All the brokenness and curse of sin will be removed. God will make everything new. And Jesus, in his inaugural sermon in Luke 4, said, Look, the ultimate Sabbath, I'm fulfilling it, the year of Jubilee. And you can look back at that sermon to get more detail on that. But the year of Jubilee was like the ultimate Sabbath. And that has come. I'm bringing the time the prophets talked about when I'm going to redeem, God's going to redeem his people and he's going to bring new creation about and thing, God's kingdom is going to come to earth. That time is being fulfilled. So to say Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is saying God is Lord of the Sabbath because God is the one who created the Sabbath. He made the law and so he stands above it. He doesn't stand under it. And Jesus is the Son of God through whom and for whom all things were made. And he's the one who redeems us. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. And the Sabbath was given as a gift to God's people to remember God's gift of creation and redemption. And Jesus is the giver along with the Father. This means that Jesus knows the true intent and purpose of the Sabbath. He knows how to interpret it and imply it. And as Lord of the Sabbath, it also means everything the Sabbath looks forward to is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. And what does the Sabbath anticipates and shows we long for? Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The Sabbath is like a rest stop on the way to the final destination. So think that, that feeling when you flop on your bed after an exhausting day. The feeling of making it home after a really long trip. And you get to come and oh, we're home. It's, you know, it's good to be home. There's a longing, an ache for it. You know, the feeling after the realtor hands you the keys after you've done this search for a home and done the, uh, the inspections and done, signed the paperwork for you know, hours signing things. And then you've, all, all of it is done and you just to walk in the door and enjoy it. This is ours. The work is done. Finishing a big yard project and kind of like standing back and kind of leaning on your shovel and being like, oh, I just kind of like admiring the work you've done and the feeling of the accomplishment. And the thing is, in all these scenarios, they're all scenarios of work. The work has happened and now we get to rest and enjoy it. But we did the work in all of those. We did the exhausting day we worked to make it home from the long trip. We worked to buy the house. We worked to finish the big yard project. We did the work. We put in the effort. But when it comes to what Jesus is offering us, he does all the work. Jesus all, does all the work for us. Jesus gives us rest as a gift. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And we enter into the Sabbath rest he's giving us, not because we've done the work and now we get to rest, but because he's done the work and now we can rest in the work that he's finished and accomplished. And so what... What is the rest Jesus is giving to us? You may think, like, okay, well, we're just going to sit on hammocks. Is that what he's telling us to do? But Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus offers us a soul rest, a whole being rest. We live in a a sin-sick world with sin-sick bodies and sin-sick hearts. Nothing comes easy. Relationships don't come easy. Parenting doesn't come easy. Work doesn't come easy. Righteousness and holiness doesn't come easy. We want to be free of it. The curse of sin, the difficulty of broken relationships, the pain of unfulfilled dreams and desires, the broken, messed up world of injustice and violence and, and sickness and suffering. We want to be set free from the sin inside us, our selfish hearts, and the ways we tend to hurt the people that we love the most. And it all feels like so much work. It feels like we're fighting for survival against a world that is set against our success. We live in a jungle of survival of the fittest and a minefield of dangers, and it's all so tiring. And let's not even get started on how we feel that we don't deserve anything from God. On our best days, we look in the mirror, and we see someone who's falling short and not keeping up. Deep down, we know we aren't living up to what God desires for us. Even if we try to put a good show on for those around us, deep down we feel like fakes and failures and frauds. In our most honest moments, we admit that we tend to live for ourselves at the expense of others. We think to ourselves, if people knew the real me, they would never want to be my friend. Nobody would like me. In fact, they might even be disgusted with me and say, I need, you need a lot of help. And if that's true of other people, how much truer is it of God, who already knows everything about us? There's no way we will ever get on his good side. And into all of this, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of your rest. I have done all you need to have it. The rest and relief you desire is found in me. I give it to you freely. There's nothing left to do. I've done it all. And the cross of Jesus Christ... His death on our behalf opens up a whole new world for us. The work he's done. He paid the sins of our yesterday. He frees us from the power of sin today. And he'll free us completely from the presence of sin in the future. No more brokenness, no more sin, no more sickness, no more mourning, no crying or pain anymore. For all the former things will pass away. And he'll say, behold, I'm making it all new. Jesus gives us the rest we're hungry for. Jesus brings the release and restoration our hearts long for. There's nothing left to do except receive it, rejoice in it, and relax in it. Let your heart and soul unwind, unburden your your tight tight shoulders, spear to the tight shoulders of your soul and heart, that this all rests on you. Jesus is what you need. Then we ask the question, should we practice the Sabbath today? Jesus fulfilled it, so we can look to it as a fulfillment. But every spiritual practice, Sabbath, solitude, silence, Bible engagement, prayer, fasting, it all facilitates a relationship with God. It's not meant to earn something from God, but it facilitates it, and is a means by which we put ourselves in a position to receive from Jesus. If you went in the, uh, bath, the, the bathrooms here to wash your hands, and you stand there waiting for the water to turn on, but you never put your hands out, uh, the water is not going to turn on. If you want the water, you've got to put your hand in a position for it to turn on and give you the water. And that's what spiritual practices are. They're putting, it's not like you paid for the water. It just comes out freely, and it doesn't matter how hard you put your hands in there. Like It's going to come out with the same flow. And so it's us putting ourselves in a position to receive is what spiritual practices are about. 
And we can still practice the Sabbath as a way to remember Jesus today, that he's the Lord of our rest, taking 24 hours where we stop, don't work, and rest. And it forces us to believe things about God. If you think about the four G's um, up here, it pushes us to believe all these. Every week, having a 24-hour time period, where it's like it's forcing me to believe what I often forget about God. Now, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. And stopping to work from working for 24 hours to rest uh, makes us accept, I'm not in control of my life or the world. I can stop and rest in Jesus' control of my life. Makes us accept that everything will be okay. Whatever it is we want, to, if whatever it is we want to get done is left undone. It's not controlling, you know, our whole life and the whole world. To stop and rest in obedience to Jesus forces us to recognize that someone else is Lord of our lives. In the same way, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. Others may want you to work and get more done. Maybe you only feel good about yourself when you're getting things done. Because then you have something to show the world to say, look, I'm worth something. Look, I'm valuable because I get stuff done. And stopping, working, and resting pushes us to find our worth, value, identity in Jesus' work on our behalf because uh, we're more than our work. It's his work. God is good, so I don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. We often tell ourselves, if I just got this done, then I'd be content. I need to work because I just need a little bit more money and then I'll be you know, satisfied and secure. I'd have enough. If I just finish this project, then I feel like I can relax. And stopping for 24 hours takes our eyes off of those things that we're working hard to get uh, as a source of our contentment, rest, and relief. And, and we often use our to-do list or making more money or getting more things as our source of satisfaction. And we stop on the Sabbath to look at Jesus. No, he's the one that gives me my rest, my contentment, and my joy. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. We're afraid that if we aren't working, then who are we? If I'm not doing stuff, if I'm not being productive, if I'm not contributing, then I won't be loved, I won't be accepted. People won't like me, I won't be embraced. We think, we, I won't be okay if I stop, because people won't be okay with that. God won't be okay with that. We use what we do to prove we're worthy of whatever it is we want from other people or from God. Love, blessing, kindness, salvation. But grace means that we get what we don't deserve. God loves us, period. It's not based on what we do. God loves us because he loves us. It comes from him, not from us. And sometimes people say, you know, maybe you've heard this, the devil doesn't take a day off, so neither do I. You know, he's always working, and so you know, if we're going to advance the kingdom of God, we gotta, we can't stop working because then the kingdom of darkness will invade. But do we really want to model our time management after the devil? When, especially when God has said, model it after me. I worked six days, and I rested. Now enjoy what I've done. Sometimes we're afraid to stop because we're afraid of what we might start feeling or thinking. Those thoughts and feelings that are often pushed down when we're busy come up when we stop. We use busyness to push down the difficult feelings and thoughts inside us that we don't want to face or deal with. And taking a Sabbath puts you in a position every week to decide who it is you're going to trust. It's a week to remind you of who God is and who you are, where your identity comes from. And if there's one sentence, I'll end with this, to remember, is to relax and rejoice in Jesus' rest.
relax and rejoice in Jesus' rest. Which means relaxing and rejoicing in what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for you. It's his work that we rest in. We look backward to what Jesus has done on our behalf as our creator and redeemer. We look forward to what he will do on our behalf as our creator and redeemer. He's done the greatest work necessary to give you the rest your heart and soul long for. And so relax and rejoice in Jesus' rest for you. Let's pray. God, we often find it so hard to stop working or to value the work we're doing and we just sometimes want to stop. Lord, would you help us to find our rest in you and what you, the work you've done on our behalf that now we can rest in it make us right um, with you that we don't have to strive to be good with you. There's something we pray. Amen.